Happy Shmini Yatserat and Simchas Torah. Welcome to Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by senior writer Leah Leibovitz. Do you ever think that your professional career would involve ever saying the phrase Happy Shmini Yatserat? I never did. As but, a little boy, was but, that part of your dream? No, but my mother, who thinks Tishabov is funny because it sounds like tushy and she doesn't know what it is, also thinks Shmini Yatserat is a funny thing to say. Yeah, Tishabov is hilarious. Tishabov is hilarious. Uh, and deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi. Hi. Later in the show, we'll be talking with humorist, novelist, Jewess Sloane Crosley, and with our guest, non-Jew of the week, our token Gentile, David Orr, who has a new book out about the Robert Frost poem, The Road Not Taken. So, uh, a little news of the Jews. Uh, Israeli supermodel. Two words that don't often go together. <laughs> Israeli supermodel. That is racist, Mark. Bar Raffaelli got married to some bald billionaire dude in a white linen shirt. I think his name was Adi Ezra. And she tried to get the government to create a no-fly zone over her wedding. Uh, they refused. There was a contretemps in the government, and they they refused. Uh, the MacArthur Foundation announced its Genius Award winners. Another year, no Genius Award for me. Of course, the Forward, the Jewish newspaper, counted who won the list was Jewish. Good for them. A few of them were. Hashtag lists of Jews. Lists of Jews. Um, and star of the OC, Adam Brody, and his wife, Gossip Girl Leighton Meester, announced the name of their son, Arlo Day Brody. What do we think about this name? I think this baby dog. is amazing because this is like the Josh Schwartz, like this mega child that's that's the the spawn of like his East Coast and West Coast high school teenage show. He's preppy. He's surfer. Is, yeah, like is, what's Arlo going to be like? Doing is he going to end up now? going to Brown? I is there no a new idea. show? I have no idea. We There's need nothing, the world man. needs him yeah, to, to he's start doing things. Let's get him as a guest. He's making babies now. Is he of Jewish? Josh Schwartz. <laughs> Um, but let's talk about Jewish fashion legend, words that do often go together. Ralph Lauren, born Ralph Lifshitz, as we all know, who announced this week that he was stepping down as head of his company to be replaced by some Swede who's the CEO of Old Navy. The Swedish CEO was credited with saving Old Navy, which is just what the world needed to make sure that Old Navy survived. Uh, this is big. I, you know, what has Ralph Lauren meant for the Jews? Liel, is he, does he mean anything to you? I, I, I couldn't care less. It's it's so funny. Every time you see someone wearing Ralph Lauren's, like you realize that the kids in high school beating you up for being, you know, gay and Jewish, and you realize those are the people you're now trying to look like, and you realize you'll never be those people because you you throw up when you go on a boat and you're afraid of horses. Like, why are we doing this? <laughs> and you wear Doctor Who T-shirts. Why are we doing this this make believe shit? You know, why why are we pretending like this is? I, I understand the assimilationist aspirational appeal, but come on. I mean, it's so patently. Silly, but he's the one who's like capitalizing on this prep appeal. Like it's kind of genius what he did, and I know Mark has I a lot of thoughts that. about it. But like that, this like Jewish guy from Brooklyn is like the one selling you preppy chic. It's just kind the, of amazing. Right. What I love is that the wasps now also wear his extra big pony and buy his sheets, and like they don't know any way to be landed gentry except through Ralph Lifshitz's version of what that's supposed to look like. Right, because the Ralph Lifshitzes of this world also killed the concept of the landed gentry. Not just the look, but also the very idea. Because if you can make $4 billion out of making, you know, schmatas, then there really isn't any more class structure. Yeah, no, and, I, I know, think he's a hero. I think he's great. Sometimes a good thing. Turning now to Mahmoud Abbas, also known as Abu Mazen. I looked up why he's known as Abu Mazen. It's his kunya, it's his son's name. Okay, so you knew that. I think one out of a million Americans would know that it's a teconym, a name you're given after your child. Right. So I want to be Abba Rivka, 
father of Rebecca, and you're Abba Hudson. I'm Abu Hudson. Abu Hudson. I'm Ima Cat Stevens. <laughs> Ima Cat Stevens. Yeah, Um, um Cat Stevens. Count too. <laughs> so Abu Mazen was at the United Nations where he gave a speech saying that the Oslo Accords of the mid-90s are dead. Nobody knew what this meant. Would it mean that he his police forces were no longer going to cooperate well, with the Israeli all, police we... forces? Don't interrupt me. Sorry. Uh, does it mean he'll end all business ties with Israel, which, of course, nobody would want because then everyone would be even poorer? Leo, what did this mean? Well, first of all, c- can we take a moment to talk about the U.N. General Assembly? I bet you're a big Lulz. fan. It's, it's an amazing thing, you know, because you see people there who, who are kind of, you know, they're literally super villains, right? You, you see, you know, the supreme leader of Iran in his robe and his, like, headgear. And you're half expecting his speech, which is in Farsi, so you could imagine whatever you want him to be saying. <laughs> be like, if Gotham City doesn't give me $1 billion, I'll blow up. The-. You expect, like, Batman to show up a general assembly be like, show's over, Khamenei. And know, the fact that Give up all- the nukes. The fact that they're all stroking cats, like the guy from Spectre, in their, in their <laughs> These laps. These people, and they're taken seriously. That's the thing. that They come onto the stage, and like as world leaders, they're like, oh, yeah, that's a good speech. You know, that's, that's the first thing that kind of blew my mind. The second thing that blew my mind is, yeah, this, this Abbas speech was, was really... I mean, there are a lot of patently silly things coming out of Ramallah these days, but this was, this was particularly uh, heinous because... He spent weeks kind of saying, I'm going to drop a bomb. And people are like, I don't think anyone who is, you know, the former head of the PLO should ever say that, <laughs> you know, figuratively uh, or otherwise. What about, like, this is the bomb. This is, yeah, the, don't, don't talk about bombs of us. That's not a forte. New I mean, met- it's a forte of yours. New metaphor, and then he's please. Like, I will, if things don't go well, I will no longer abide by the Oslo Accords. Like, yeah, you mean like how you sent your lackeys to murder two Israelis in front of their four children the other day? Like, come on, this is not a very credible and or new newsworthy threat. But then Bibi showed up and kind of rose to the bait, right? Bibi, no, Bibi rocked it. Bibi really, I was, you know, this is not something that I get to say very often. I was supremely pleased with him this week. Why? Just because he just stood there silently. He he basically looked at me and I said, you are so ridiculous. The fact that I'm standing in the same rostrum as, you know, Putin, who's slaughtering civilians in Syria and and Khamenei is like, I'm just going to stand here for 42 seconds or 43 seconds and just say nothing. And, and you know, this is like the, the, the equivalent of when you tell a kid, like, think about what you did. Go to your room. <laughs> go to your room. Be quiet. The good news is that Putin's in Syria. So what could go wrong? Of course. Yeah, that's, that's great news. You know who we need to hear from about this is Amy Schumer. Amy Schumer has a new book deal in the high seven figures, according to all the trade publications. It took me a second to say how many millions is that? So it's, it's eight. It's eight or nine, right? Mm-hmm. It's not into the ten. It's no. the yeah, seven it's figures. It's okay. Um but here's the thing. She had another book deal a couple years ago for a million dollars, and she didn't write that book because she knew she was getting more famous, and she gave back the advance on that book with interest, it should be said. Very menschy. Very menschlich. And and then signed a much bigger book deal. So it was kind of like, screw you to HarperCollins. Simon & Schuster has a better offer for me down the road. It was, but like, you know, it's what, it's, it's what my prom date did when, when she left a guy because I gave her a better offer. What was your offer? Oh. Is it bad Me. that I thought that she was gonna? You were gonna say that she left you for a better offer. I, I was. Why, why did I think <laughs> right, the same which, thing? Mark? Which pretty and pink prom yeah. scenario were you in? Why was... did we both think that you were that you were the uh, the opening bid here? Do we like Amy Schumer less for this? No, we love Amy Schumer. We love Amy Schumer. Look, I think we should be just like astonished and amazed that someone is getting 
$8 million. First of all, book deals, but $8 million book deals. That's amazing. I mean, we always talk about like, oh, Tina Fey got $6 million. Oh, my God. And now this is sort of like the new benchmarker. And I also think we like to think of the book industry as like very polite and, you know, like really nicely worded rejection letters. And what she did was sort of a savvy business move. I think she the first book wasn't going well. She returned it and she sort of figured that she could get more. And I think we're just sort of like, ooh, that's not really polite. That's not really like ladylike. How, how like, like, dare she? Yeah. And so it's kind <laughs> of just, I mean. Good for you, Amy. Before we go to our first guest, an announcement. We have been getting so much amazing mail that we are going to dedicate a whole show to talking with our listeners and answering some of the questions you've been sending us, going over your comments, giving you big audio hugs. That's coming up in about a month. If you think you might want to get in on it, if you have something you have to tell us or a question to ask us, why do we do things this way or that way? Who is your most or least favorite guest? Which of us would you throw off the island? Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. You can also sign up for our newsletter at our website. Also, we're going on the road. On October 13th, we'll be taping this show before a live audience at Yale University. We'll be at the Joseph Slifka Center for Jewish Life, which is what they call the Hillel, and you are invited. We're not quite yet sure who our super secret guests will be, but if you follow me on Twitter at MarkOp1 or follow Tablet Magazine or get our newsletter, we will tweet it out. Come and we'll give you actual, not just audio hugs. Our Jewish guest today is Sloane Crosley. Have you ever been introduced that way? It's the first time, Sloane, right? I think it might be. Author of the new novel, The Clasp. She's also author of the essay collections, I Was Told There'd Be Cake, and How Did You Get This Number? She's a New Yorker, but where'd you grow up? White Plains. Oh, so you're a New Yorker. Glorious Westchester. (laughs) Glorious Westchester. Um, And um, I haven't read your book yet. That's okay. So I I feel like interviewers should come clean about that. I think so, too. Stephanie has read your book. Everyone gets kidnapped by aliens at the end. Stephanie has read your book. Okay, I love it. Thank you. It's so good. And I just want to know what, like, what's the thought process behind naming a Jewish girl Sloane Crosley? Like, there is, (laughs) that is the the ne plus ultra. It's the Ralph Lauren of names. Right? Were you born Sloane Lifshitz? But you're like, that won't work in my chosen career as a book publicist? No, I didn't change it. Although it was changed not too many generations uh, back. Uh, my grandfather's original name was Kantrowitz. Nice. Which is an extremely Jewish name. Nice. Um, and he was told he would never make it. He was a China salesman. And he was told um, that he would never make it in business in this country uh, with a name like Kantrowitz. And the man who told him this happened to have a Crosley radio on his desk. And he's a fast-thinking, impulsive man. Um, and that is how I got my last name. He thought that'll do. And so that's the Crosley so someone um, told Grandpa, Kantowitz, you'll never make it in sales as a Jew in this country. <laughs> and he was like, okay, then that. He was like, okay. Great. Which is sort of weird. I mean, I guess maybe if he was selling something different, uh, he right. would have made it. Uh, if he was in the film industry, I'm sure it would have. And and the Sloan, you're named after Great Aunt Sura or something? <laughs> the Sloan, um, my mother, uh, different uh, bloodline, yet equally as impulsive, apparently, uh, was watching a movie called uh, Diamond Head with Charlton Heston. I don't know if you're familiar with this. It's about uh, the downfall of the pineapple industry. It's really weird that you guys haven't all watched it multiple times. Um, but uh, the main character's name was Sloane Howland, and she thought, that's pretty, and she was pregnant. And so... <laughs> so, but for the Charlotte Heston movie and the radio and this, like, your name is, in, is entirely an agglomeration of, like, American consumer detritus. Yeah. Exactly. It's incredibly... It's just a, I'm a walking piece of pop culture. <laughs> Got it. Yep. So, Stephanie, your book was good, you said? Yes, it's really great. Um, <laughs> and it's funny because it's, it sort of has, it starts as this, like, you know, 
29-year-olds getting back together for a college reunion. I'm explaining it to you like you don't know. Oh. And then there, it goes into this just like sort of treasure hunt that you wouldn't expect. And you, you had me with like the mid the, the quarter-life crisis and like the friends coming back together. And then there were Nazis and there's jewelry and Europe. There's always Nazis. And then it, yeah. It, yeah, especially on this show. This is actually the first time we've mentioned Nazis today, which means, yeah, yeah. I don't know, everyone drink. Well, thank you. I'm glad you liked it. But it's just, I mean, it's just really, really funny. And I think my question for you is sort of like, it, you sort of get a sense of like your essay writing in here, just because of the way, you know, the sentences are just so, so well crafted. What was it, a, what was the transition like from writing essays to writing a novel? Um, well, it, it's funny. I mean, well, first of all, essays, essays end. That's what they do um, frequently. Um, so you don't have to delve in so much in terms of actually the the time period that it's taking from your life. Um, and for this, just literally, I'm just talking about real estate at this point. Um, but um, I had to sort of commit to it and quit my job to do it. Um, but it was also quite freeing in some ways uh, to be able to really make things up whole cloth, um, which you can't or shouldn't really do in, in nonfiction. Um, but then you also don't have the the truth to hide behind you don't have the ability to say well I wasn't there I was nine you know or I I don't remember um or you know you actually have to be responsible for every ice cube and every glass of whiskey that's in that book and there's a fair amount of whiskey in the book you started out as as a publicist I did as a book publicist well my first job was for a literary agent but then I uh, I worked in book publicity for about 10 years what makes you look at the other end of the glass and say you know what I think this will be a good industry to be a part of for the rest of my life can you imagine that's like an A&R guy being like I'm gonna start a garage band yeah (laughs) it's a great idea I I know how many people are buying books and I want to be an author now I mean what how does that work um, also, I, another impulsive, crazy move, isn't it? I guess so. We're we're very uh, sort of a traditionally responsible family, and then I think we just all crack. <laughs> I think that's and decide to like quit our job. Like the china that your grandpa sold. Exactly. Oh wow, that was beautiful. Um, <laughs> but I just um, and it, so far so good. I mean, I, I would have if they had let me take like an eight month sabbatical, I might not be sitting here. But they they wouldn't let me do that, so um, I quit. Well, that's amazing. I mean, to, to to have the courage to do that when you you know how few people really are paying attention to this industry anymore. Very few, and and less and less. And someone asked me the other day, um, it was you know a sort of women in writing kind of bent question where they asked me, um, you know, do you think there's enough room for all women? Do you think there's enough room for all these writers and all these voices? And I'm like, oh, this is such a ridiculous question. Obviously, yes. The answer is yes, but at the same time, I sort of gave a an answer that I hope didn't come off as um, <laughs> anti-feminist. But I was like, in a way, if you're actually talking about coverage, no, there's not enough room because there's not as many ad dollars. The pages of magazines are being cut. The first thing that gets cut is the arts coverage. So technically, no, but philosophically, yes. You go on a lot of these book uh, book you know tours and and you know events and talks, right? I do. What's I the do. dumbest question you've ever gotten from an audience member? Oh, because there are a lot of dumb questions. But that's there. a great question. I wish you would. I, I wish an audience member would stand up during one of these things. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a question. It's more of a statement. More it's a more comment. of a statement. Oh, comment, yeah. Um, somewhere between where did you get your necklace and where do your ideas come from? Where your ideas come from is really the most despicable question you could ask another human being. Like, Wait, you're the not going to be... The idea You're not going to be on... <laughs> exactly. You're not going to be on some radio... Amazon Prime. 
You're not going to be on some radio show soon saying, the dumbest question ever was asked me, where'd I get my name? Where'd I get my name? No. Where'd I get my name? That's a good question. I think that was a good question. I think it's a good question and nobody asks because I think think it's the, you've got the the dual shot of the Sloan and the Crosley. So no, it doesn't occur to anyone. No, it's the last name, last name. Yeah. If my name was, if my name was Sloan Kantrowitz, people probably would just say, where did Sloan come from? Right. Where did people just... I ask you this last question only because our listeners are filled with with grandmas. But do you have somebody? Oh. Do we need to find somebody for you? Are you, are you taken? <laughs> um, I do have somebody. Oh. Yes, I do have somebody. Mazel tov. Um, thank you. I, I have some bad news, though. His you have la- some bad news? His last name is O'Connell. It's not bad for us. I mean, you know, <laughs> we, it's, don't care. It's, we don't care. It was originally Kantrowitz. <laughs> it was originally O'Connellberg. And now for our world-famous featured Gentile of the Week. David Orr is the poetry columnist for the New York Times Book Review. His first book, Beautiful and Pointless, about how to read a poem, was awesome. I read it myself. read it aloud to my children. Wow. No, I didn't do that. But I did read it, and it's really good. And I I loved it very much, too. I didn't sell it back to the used bookstore. Uh, And (laughs) his new book is The Road Not Taken, a a biography of a poem. It's about Robert Frost's uh, famous poem. Uh, David lives... you in Ithaca right now? I am in Ithaca. David lives in Ithaca? And thanks for being with us. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys? We're okay. Yeah, we're solid. <laughs> Just okay. Um, so I know you have a question for us, but first we, we have a couple questions for you. Do you. Tell us, what's the argument of the new book? Well, the argument is, I guess, that this poem that I think most of us know, I'm sure all of you guys know, The Road Not Taken, about, uh, which is supposed to be about taking the less traveled path, which makes all the difference, um, that the poem is widely misunderstood, which is something people have pointed out in the past, but I'm arguing in the book that the misunderstanding about the poem um, is sort of a misunderstanding on, on all fronts, and that we all get the poem a little bit wrong. And in fact, that's what makes the poem so attractive and what makes it so American in some ways. So the first half of the book is really about Robert Frost and about the poem, and then the second half is about uh, the nature of choice and the nature of the part of us that does the choosing um, and what the poem has to say about these things, and then sort of more broadly what it has to say about the country. So if you were in a ninth grade English class where, you know, this poem gets read for the first time, what would you say? Like, what would you say? To ninth graders? Yeah. Um, You'd say stop texting, first of all. (laughs) I would say stop texting, but they'd probably say that to me, too. Um, (laughs) I I would say, okay, what do you think the poem's about? And then I assume most of them would say, well, it's about picking the path and it's the less traveled one and that makes all the difference. And then I would say, well, did you notice that in the middle of the poem, Robert Frost is pretty careful to point out that the two paths are the same, that they're basically identical, um, that they equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. And then I would say, and did you notice at the end of the poem, he's actually not talking about, um, well, I took the road and now I'm in the future looking back on my choice. He's actually saying, I will be telling a story somewhere ages and ages hence about how I took a less traveled road, even though I've just told you that these roads are equally traveled. So what do you think that it says about the poem? And then hopefully my ninth graders would tell me, oh, okay, this poem is a lot more complicated than I thought. And then they'll see someone ought to write a book about it. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. So something a lot of people wouldn't know because not a lot of people follow the poetry world is that it's an incredibly angry world. Um, You know, I've written a little bit about about poetry and, and you've written a lot more about poetry. And when you write about poetry, poets, you, you get more online abuse than if you write about you know, abortion or Donald Trump. I mean, it's it's the poetry was incredibly 
um, fractious and angry, and there's a lot of racial politics. Am I right about that? It's uh, it's not a placid world. Uh, <laughs> yeah, people like, are uh, people get stirred up a lot. And again, it's not because people in the poetry world are uniquely horrible or anything. It's just because the position of the poetry world is one in which you know resentment is just maximized, and you know it is for everybody. It's just by because, what? By academia? By lack of resources? By lack of self-respect? By what? Uh, I think everything you just said, maybe. Um, and probably a few other things, too. I mean, you know, poetry is largely an academic art form, but it's not really a powerful academic art form. So it's sort of doubly marginalized. You know, it's academic, but it's not even as if it's at the center of the academy. It's sort of peripheral. I mean, what everybody forgets when people talk about poetry being academic is that it's not like every academic reads poetry. I mean, poetry is sort of read by people in English departments. Nobody in the history department's reading poetry. So it's not as if poetry is even academic. It's this tiny little subset of academia. And, I mean, it's a tough condition for people because, look, you know, poets take their writing really seriously. They work very, very, very hard at it. I mean, some more than others. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a thing that means a lot to them, and it means so very little to other people, and that's just a hard reality for anyone to deal with. Can we liberate it? I mean, you wrote your book, which I feel, you know, made great strides towards kind of taking it to you know, a previously uh, unfathomable popular place, but can, can we make it relevant again? Because there was a time not so long ago when people could actually recite poems, right? I mean, this used yeah. to be something that was part of our mental furniture. Yeah, well, I mean, that's actually part of the point of this book about Robert Frost. I mean, you know, The Road Not Taken is unbelievably popular. I mean, it's I can't really overstate how popular this poem is. Now, I mean, granted, it's often misunderstood, but, you know, so are a lot of other things. I mean, it's unspeakably popular, and so was Frost. I mean, people would stop Frost and ask for his autograph, you know. Um, obviously, that's not happening today. I mean, Kennedy sent Frost to Russia to meet with uh, Khrushchev. I mean, nobody's sending Billy Collins to Russia, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe they will. Maybe he'll solve all the problems. It'd be great. We'll send him to Syria, and he'll just negotiate a, yeah, right. a truce. Uh, now, you have a question for us. I mean, it's, it's rare that a poetry critic, as rare as it is for a poetry critic to get a half million dollar advance or be asked for an autograph, it's even rarer that a poetry critic gets to address a panel of Jewish experts, world-renowned Jewish experts on a podcast. I know. Uh, <laughs> it, is, it is one of the great moments in our culture. I mean, are, are we all ready? I don't know. <laughs> so what's the question? What do you have for us? Um, I have two questions. Um, one is more serious than the other. I want to ask sort of a personal question for me. So I grew up in South Carolina, um, in Colombia, and there's actually a, a pretty large Jewish population there, and I grew up around a lot of, of Jewish kids who were a lot of my good friends. And, you know, when you grow up in an area, you don't really register that there's any sort of cultural difference. I mean, everybody in South Carolina is just kind of Southern. Um, and the first time I think that it ever, I ever, I ever realized there was something a little bit different about my friend Danny, um, so we were probably, you know, like eight or nine years old. I was at his house, and he was always playing Neil Diamond. Let me just say, you know, nothing bad about Neil Diamond at all, but <laughs> in like 1983 in South Carolina, Neil Diamond was not common cultural currency. And he was so into Neil Diamond, and I was like, what's the deal with Neil Diamond? He's like, well, he's Jewish. And I was like, I, I did not know that. So I guess I just wanted to ask, is Neil Diamond a thing in the, in the American Jewish consciousness, or was this just my friend's idiosyncratic taste? So the first thing you forgot to mention is your, your friend Danny was, what, 45? <laughs> like, I think it was and his a woman, dad yeah. who was into Neil Diamond. I don't think it was, and then it was just sort of passed along um, 
you know, yeah. like a bad sandwich or something. I, I mean, I let me say that I was not played Neil Diamond growing up, and if I had been, it, my dad wouldn't have said, "Well, you know, we have to listen to our fellow Jews." I mean. I was played Billy Joel, who was Jewish. Oh, right. well, Billy Joel I, like, I mean, yeah. but you know, he was Jewish, and people, you know, he escaped the Jewish ghetto. But so too is Neil Diamond, who's really like Robert Frost. I think part of the mental furniture of America. I don't. I think this is about your friend Danny. I have to be honest. I don't, okay, that's fine. That's actually good to know. Like, if you'd I, said, if you'd said that there was a copy of Irving Howe's World of Our Fathers on his bookshelf or Portnoy's Complaint, <laughs> you know, if you'd said that like they weren't observant, but Friday night was always family night. Okay. Although, you know, I don't know. They do play, you know, Sweet Caroline at the Mets games still. But the Yankees are the Jewish team. Uh, come on. Come on now. <laughs> and, they, and they played Sweet Caroline in Beautiful Girls. It's what all the, the Irish Catholics up in New Hampshire sing at the bar. I mean, it, you know, he's, he's American. Yeah. Okay. Okay, what's number two? Number two is a more, some, sort of a more serious question. Um, and I could even be wrong about it. But I was just sort of thinking about, you know, we were talking about the differences between fiction and poetry. So, you know, American fiction is hugely shaped by Jewish writers. I mean, it's almost in some, it may, maybe dominated would be too strong of a word. You're talking to a, some of them right now. Right, I know. It's a, it's a giant, giant presence. And American poetry, there are a, a number of very good Jewish American poets, but it just seems to be a smaller presence. I mean, it's still a large presence, don't get me wrong, but, um, and I don't have any trouble thinking of good Jewish American poets or anything like that, but it's not to the same degree, at least it seems to me, as, as fiction. So I'm just wondering if you guys felt the same way, and if you do, like, what might be an explanation for that? Gee, if only we had a poetry critic on the line, <laughs> we could ask <laughs> this question. So I, I, I have a, th- a thought about this. I think certainly you're right, right? Jewish novelists are a dime a dozen. We got bad ones. We got good ones. We've got you know, we got dominant ones. Um, I think that you're looking at it backwards. I think very few people set out to write poetry, and a disproportionate number of them are Gentiles, and in fact, Protestants. Right. I think there's, I think there's a waspy thing that um, is, and I wouldn't say in certain families, but there's a kind of archetype that a certain kind of bookish Gentile kid, you know, aspires to. He, he or she is there in his or her books, and with the alcoholic mom and the absent, adulterating dad, and the future in McLean Hospital after the psychotic break, and is reading Dickinson and Robert Lowell and Bishop, and all of these people are are wasps. And I think that um, that they have a tradition to plug into that seems to be the right. tradition of the like fractured, broken, confessional Gentile, and that's yeah. Just... You you paint such a flattering portrait of my art. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I just and, and of your people and of your people yeah, and of your religion. Um, I mean, there aren't a lot well, of... I'm Southern, so I don't really quite right. fit into that particular archetype. I mean, I guess... And actually, I'm not even religious at all, although I guess I would sort of default to um, Protestantism, I guess. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I, sort of, I see what you mean. So you're saying it actually says more about Gentiles than about Jews. That's my take. But what do you think? Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way, but it's entirely possible. I mean, so it's almost a suggestion that there's really a lot of just Northeastern Gentiles in the poetry world, which does, by the way, seem to me to be true. So... Maybe so. Yeah. Maybe so. Maybe the Jews are just too sensible. <laughs> we know that poetry doesn't sell. Is that what you're saying? No, no you I big anti semite. Um, so, for our listeners, could could you tell us like who who's the best Jewish poet in America right now? Yeah, um, probably Louise Glick. I, I, unless I'm mistaken and she's not Jewish, but I I'm 95 percent certain that she's Jewish. See, and I didn't think she was. That's so interesting. Well, this is a problem solvable <laughs> by Google. Can anyone <laughs> find out if Louise Glick is Jewish? Hold on, hold on, hold on. But okay, while I'm Googling that, who's number two? Number two. Um, gosh, I don't know. I'd have to think about who actually is Jewish. Um, 
if we're allowed dead poets, it's really easy because you have Allen Ginsberg. Oh, interesting. Okay, so and, according and C.K. Williams who passed right, yeah, away. Charlie, last... Yeah, Charlie Williams. So um, would certainly count and um, Carl Shapiro. Okay, Adrian Rich. Oh yeah. Okay, so we've recently lost a bunch of good ones. And wasn't and, and Drake, and Drake. Yeah, can and we count Drake, Drake? and Bob? Uh, right, obviously. Hey, Drake. Bob Dylan. Isn't Bob Dylan the greatest living? He's not better than Louise Glick. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> Is that a yes? You know, one thing I have to say about that with the Dylan stuff. You know, I, I nothing against Bob Dylan, but you know, I, if I had a nickel for every time somebody said to me something like, "Well, aren't the real poets today?" You know, like, and then just insert here, like rappers, you know, rock stars, folk songwriters, whatever. If I had a nickel for every time that happens, I would be um, like twenty dollars richer than I am. <laughs> but it's really funny. I'm always like, well, yeah, you know, I'm absolutely totally happy to concede that ground, and and all of these people can be poets. It's it's absolutely fine with me. I mean, you know, whatever. I mean, anybody can be a poet. Neil Diamond's a poet. Um, you know, Drake. As long as then all of the poets can have some of the money. <laughs> it's a completely straight, even swap. You just give us a big pile of money, and then you can call yourself a poet, and it is completely fine with me. So you're saying that Miley Cyrus is like our our generation's best poet. <laughs> if she'll give me some of her actual capital, I will give her some of my cultural capital. Perfect. Straight up. That trade. sounds like a great exchange. It should be like a Venmo for yeah, that. Cash, oh, cash I know. reverse. We could have like a, a little summit, and we could just work out terms and have a contract. Like, you want legit- artistic legitimacy. <laughs> I just want some of your money. I feel like Liel's biting his tongue to not jump in with some Leonard Cohen action right now. No, no. Oh, I, I know. I know. Leonard Cohen. That's the other one you always hear about. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Is he more Canadian or more Jewish? He's more Buddhist. I think they're interchangeable. No, no, I don't think he's more Buddhist at all. Okay. Um, Dave Orr, the book is called, it has the original title of The Road Not Taken, right? That's right. And the longest subtitle in the history of subtitles. Oh, what's the subtitle? It's Finding America in the poem, Everyone Loves and Almost Everyone Gets Wrong. Well, that's a humble ambition of a subtitle. I know, you know. What are you going to do? All right. So you get back to us. Let us know who the great Jewish poets are you forgot, and we'll read your book. Okay? That sounds great. Thanks so much. Thanks, David. Bye-bye. Take care. Touching hands Reaching out Touching me Touching you Okay, so some Mazel Tovs of the week before we say goodbye. Stephanie? My Mazel Tov is for all you, dear listeners. Um, at Tablet, we're starting a print magazine, um, which is really exciting. And one of the cool features we're doing is sort of resurrecting these old synagogue bulletin pages where you know people get to write in and say what's going on in their lives. And so we're inviting you to submit your own Mazel Tovs um, by emailing mazeltov at tabletmag.com with birthdays and anniversaries bar mitzvahs, early decision acceptances, anything that's going on in your community, however you define it, uh, we want to know about it. And pictures whenever possible. Mazel tov at tabletmag.com. Liel? Uh, mazel tov to all of us New Yorkers who, as of this week, are no longer burdened by the scrum of world leaders who have made traffic and morality clogged up. At the UN, that at is? At the UN, at the UN. And my mazel tovs are to my brothers. Both of my brothers' wives are expecting babies right Uncle now. Uncle Mark. So the, the brood is growing. My parents will have eight grandchildren when all is said and done by April. And I'll have been responsible for only four of them. 
We love mail. If you have thoughts, comments, praise, again, the email address is unorthodox at tabletmag.com. We are a production of Tablet Magazine, produced by Julie Subrin, superior assistance from Sarah Ivory. Rabbinic supervision this week is from Rabbi Rick Brody of Philadelphia. Our website is tabletmag.com. Our music is by Golem. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.